And I think one of the beauties of sales is when you change, you get an immediate answer. Does it work or does it not? We talk about ruffling feathers. I think one of the missteps I see a lot of people make is that it's very like antagonistic and it's very speaking in absolutes. So this would be an example of this would be cold email is dead or cold calling is dead or the way we've always done it is dead. Like I spent way too much time on LinkedIn. And there's a feeling you get when you read those posts, right? And it's this feeling of defensiveness if they're saying what you believe is wrong. And I think I was hyper aware of that feeling. And so what it caused me to do is say, how do you ruffle someone's feathers without being offensive or saying that they're stupid or they're wrong? Because, and I use this example all the time, if I was at a party and someone came up and was like, I hate your shirt, I can help you find a better shirt. I would be so hurt and so offended. I wouldn't even be paying attention to the fact that they think they can help me find a better shirt. Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast, bringing forth the new wave of rising leadership and helping leaders find purpose, connection, and results. This is your host, founder of Alluvians, Alex Kremer. All right, welcome back to the Rising Leader Podcast. And if this is your first time being on the show, we welcome you. We are so grateful that you are here. We have a professional in the art of podcasting now. I don't know if there's truth to it. Jen Allen Knuth. First off, Jen, what is up? Welcome to the show. Very glad that you are here. I am so excited to be here. I have to say, you just have the most natural podcasting voice. Like I could put you on and just like probably feel very at peace with myself listening to you. So you're a natural. One of these days, I'm going to do what Matthew McConaughey did and start to read bedtime stories. And that way people can just go to sleep listening to my voice all by them. <laughs> I'll be customer number one. There you go. Just a little background and then fill in the blanks with whatever I missed. You are a former chief evangelist and seller at the Challenger Sales Methodology. You spent quite a bit there and are a professional, so to speak, in the art and the craft of influence is what I'm going to say. You're a co-host for one of the best sales podcasts out there, the 30 Minutes to Presence Club. I was on your guys' show two months ago. I had such a ton of fun. Besides that... The coolest, not maybe the coolest thing, because there's a lot of cool things that you do, but one thing that now you are entering into is that you just started Demand Gen and you are a professional keynote speaker. I have been lucky enough to be in the audience for some of your speeches (laughs) and keynote talks that I've absolutely loved. You bring such good energy and all that. And I'm just really grateful for you to jam out a little bit. Oh my gosh. I'm going to call you every morning and just have you hype me up. This is such a feel good moment. Thank you. So I guess, let me just throw this out there. Did I miss any cool things about who Jen is? Any like cool, unique, random facts? You're like a professional pickleball player. I feel like I'm like the only person on the planet that has not played pickleball. So I'm not a professional pickleball player. I think maybe the fun fact or interesting thing about me is more to do with my personal life. I, as you mentioned, was a sales rep forever. I was actually not married forever. I just got married in March. I'm 42 years old. So in many ways, I don't fit the traditional mold of meeting someone in your 30s and being happily married. And I think that's really influenced my career quite a bit and the choices I've made. But yeah, I'm a new stepmom of four kids and a whole bunch of animals. That's my unique thing. That's a completely different life. Like you saying (laughs) that you got married, I'm like, oh, that's cool. Then when you throw in and you step on to four kids and there's a whole bunch of animals, like that's not just like a change in identity. That's a change in complete lifestyle right there. Yes, that is an understatement. You go from living a life that's all about yourself and maybe your friends and you'd be selfish and then plopped into a totally different lifestyle. So it's definitely been transformative. 
Well, one thing I, I really resonate with what you spoke to right there is this idea of you've lived the life that you felt true to you and not trying to fit into a certain box or at least try not to do it as best as possible your own journey. And I think that's extremely hard for many people who are in corporate, for many people who are in sales, who are wanting to move up to leadership, who are wanting to move up to VP and then CRO. There's like a playbook and a blueprint out there that says, follow these guidelines. By the time you're 25, you should have this. By the time you're 30, you should have the mortgage. You should be married. And do we actually allow ourselves to go down our own unique path? And I think that's something that you're embodying very well. I would be lying if I sit here and said that I was always super confident about it. And it was always easy. Like I remember being on a podcast and someone said the question, what makes you weird? And I said for a long time, I felt very weird being in my late 30s and unmarried. I felt like it was eyebrow raiser moment. And it really messed with my confidence, candidly, because when you get to a certain age and you're selling and you're meeting with people in their 40s and 50s, it's like the natural conversation is like, okay, so do you have any kids? And then when you're like, no. And then they look at your finger and they're like, oh, and you're not married. What the hell's wrong with you? So I would say for a very long time, I definitely struggled with it. And I think I overcompensated by throwing way too much of myself into work and aligning my self-worth with my work, which I think is something a lot of people do, men and women. I resonate a lot with that one too. There's a positive purpose to that though, right? I mean, you're now a keynote speaker. You were the chief evangelist officer at Challenger. You had a great career at Lavender. You've done all these great things. And so sometimes we shame ourselves. We're like, oh man, I wish like the achiever in us it's, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful thing that we all have. And also it prevents us from sometimes being really present to what is right now. I couldn't have said that any better. So I'm not even going to try. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm curious, so as you've ventured on this path, you were a individual contributor for how long in your career? 18 years. 18 years. Okay. And so how much of that was that challenger? So basically, it was the company I started at was called CEB. CEB got acquired by Gartner. And then Gartner spun off Challenger. There were some people I worked with for the entire 18 years. But it was just the company went through M&A. So it was technically a different company. But I started the Challenger role, like selling the Challenger methodology in 2015. So that would have been about seven years. Okay. Interesting because this podcast is called the Rising Leader Podcast. And for many years, you were an individual contributor. And one of the things that you talk about, though, is being a great leader with or without the title. And so I was just curious to hear a little bit more about what your story of going through too many different mergers and acquisitions and selling and leading, what that journey for you has been like and how that supported you into eventually leaving and being a keynote speaker and all that sort of stuff. And I think in many ways, there's just this really standard cookie cutter career path that many of us think that has to be our path in sales. So like maybe I come in as an SDR and then I move up to an SMBAE and then I move to mid-market AE. And then I think way too often that's what is presented to us. I was really lucky in my career that I had some phenomenal managers and coaches who very early on sat me down and said, you do not have to take that path if you don't want to. Like you can have a great life being an individual contributor even though you may have in the back of your head, like I'm not moving upwards in my career. So I was really lucky to have some great mentors. What I found for myself was leadership is often associated with title. I found that becoming an actual leader in the sense of getting people to believe you and to want to follow you and to 
back you up in meetings and to believe in, in what you're saying had way more to do with interpersonal skills and my ability to be able to effectively translate what was going on in my head and ideas that I had and confidently share those. So for me, it was absolutely a tough thing for me to gain confidence enough to say, I've got an idea. It's, it goes against with what we believe here and be able to voice that in a room. Once I did it, once I started seeing that all of these deep-seated fears I had around people are going to be like, shut up, you don't have the title to raise this, or you don't know what you're talking about, like that shit just didn't happen. It almost became something that I was obsessed with the idea of, can I get groups of people to think and believe different sets of things than they do now? And I think that's also what really drew me to sales as a career, because that essentially is sales, right? Getting someone to reconsider how they do things. But once I saw its applicability internally, I was able to get on like a ton of different projects, like CEO projects and things like that. Because people saw I wasn't afraid to go against the grain, because people saw that I was really good at translating, here's how I'm thinking about it. And leadership in my mind became much more about those sets of things. And I didn't feel like I needed to take the manager, VP, CRO path personally. Yeah, you didn't need to just manage people to say you were a leader. You could just be simply a, a great leader within the company. What were you actually trying to influence into? Has there always been this like deeper thing in you of like trying to like do something bigger, like North Star that you're always working towards? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if I look at sales, I think sales in particular is one of those professions where we have so many beliefs and assumptions about this is the right and wrong way to do things. In fact, I think it's one of the things that makes sales so hard is because people hear one thing and then hear another. And it's like, how do you know what to believe? And so where it started was I was trying different things with how I sold, like what I did in my first meeting, how I ran group meetings. I was trying them, getting up enough reps to be able to say, okay, this wasn't a one hit wonder. There's a pattern here. This works. And then raising that to my boss and then asking for and saying, would it be okay if I shared this with the rest of the team? Can I get 20 minutes on our team meeting? But it was asking for time and earning that time by saying, I'm doing something different. I've been studying it consistently. Here's what I've learned. Do you think it's worth sharing with others? So it started like that. And then that just became the way that I thought. So I would start to look at the world and say, what's a belief or assumption that we hold about what marketing's job is versus what sales jobs is? Where can I break that? How can I get people to believe and, and buy into that? And so it became such a pattern. That's why I sought out to create that chief evangelist role because I was like, that's essentially what an evangelist does is get groups of people to think and believe different things than they do today. Really, it's a great example of going towards what you just are genuinely interested in. That's one of the key things that some people got it and some people don't. At least I've experienced this. But certain people are just like hungry to get better and to think about things and to self-analyze and to do the inner work. The sales tactic and strategy is definitely important. But if there's not that underlying foundation of a greater belief in oneself and doing something and coming from that like, I don't care how good your cold call script is, it's going to fall flat if it's not coming from the right place. But what I'm hearing from you is like, I'm continuously looking at, cool, I did this. It worked. Could it be done better? Or, okay, I'm looking at how this organization is set up across marketing, sales, demand gen, all this sort of stuff. Okay, doing decently well. Could it be done differently? And that's, it's not easy to do. You got to be willing to ruffle some feathers every once in a while too. <laughs> Honestly, where it comes from, because I think a lot about like why I am the way I am. I think a lot of it came from <laughs> I had a phenomenal sales manager who was like a tough love guy who told you what you needed to hear and not what you wanted to hear, which I've always really appreciated in leaders. And I remember early in my career when I switched from account management to logo hunting, 
he gave me great advice, which is every bad thing you hear from a prospect is more often than not a result of something you have said to them. So simply by changing the way you say what you say, how you say what you say, the tone of can completely change the outcome. And I think that became so fascinating to me because I was like, oh, sales isn't this thing that I'm like, do I get lucky this year or not? I control my own destiny. So much of it has to do with the choices I make and the things I make. And that's what led me to be so fascinated with this exploration and constantly like going back to something that maybe worked and saying, how could I slightly change it to make it different? Because I hear this. And if I say this, maybe I won't hear that. And that I think is how you can stay in a career for so long when you never assume that you're an expert. And that's what I say a lot. I'm like, people will open up and be like, Jen's a sales expert. I'm like, that does not exist. (laughs) Sales changes too much. What you're speaking to right there as well is we can learn the seven steps to a great prospecting methodology. We can learn at the very first part of your pitch and you speak to the problems that are happening or the undeniable truth and then the gaps that people are experiencing and then give your product and then make sure you end with the positive business outcome. There's frameworks that we can all dive into. But then I've always felt so fascinating is when you build in the psychology into it around like, how are they thinking? And then the psychology, I love what you said around your tonality. When I say it like that, or when I have the purposeful stumble here, you know, just where and how to say it, how am I engaging with this person? Do I feel this person? Do they feel me? Are they thinking about something else, even though they're looking at me and nodding their head? That is a really beautiful practice of how to connect with people and influence them in that some sort of way. I remember when you were on the 30 Minutes to Presidents Club thing, and one of my favorite things you talked about is how you say what you say and saying things from your gut and the delivery of that. It's those type of things that I think we often overlook because we're looking for the next hack or the next tactic. But when you get really good at those things, if you look at my career, it's why I can get paid to stand on stages now because I spend so much time thinking about that stuff and becoming like really infatuated with if I say it like this, what happens versus if I say it like that. And so my career has led me to be the leader of my own business. I'm not going to make it a big thing. I'm going to stick with the solopreneur thing. But I do think it was my path to get to a leadership role that I wanted, which Mm -hmm. is to run my own company. All right. I want to get to the keynote speaker stuff here in a Mm -hmm. second because that's so badass. I'm a speaker. I'm not a keynote speaker yet, but you're inspiring me on how to do it. But I want to talk about like the ruffling the feathers just a little bit more because when I look at right now corporations and I look at sales organizations or just tech, like just the whole world of what's happening in business, what used to work doesn't seem to be quite hitting like it used to be. More people are feeling burnt out. More people are saying, hey, like I'm down to make a lot of money, but like there's other priorities too beyond just doing that. And, you know, I feel like leaders are still leading like it's 2018. And what you're speaking about on the ruffling, feathers do need to be ruffled right now. And that's also a really scary thing because people who are either at the top or who have a certain sense of security and safety for how things are, and this is just how it is, don't F it up. Take someone who's bold and who's courageous and willing to not be like to do that. So did you ever face that? I have to be courageous here. I have to be okay with people not liking me or not agreeing with me. This is a, an awesome question because as a human being, I am a people pleaser. And as a sales rep for the first seven years, I was a relationship builder. And I cared so much about being pleasant. And then 2008 hit. And I was like, I'm the most pleasant bitch on the street. And <laughs> I'm getting nothing for it. And I think that's one of those reasons why 
I know a lot of people this year are struggling and it's like people who have not gone through something like this before, they look at it and they're like, it's so hard and it sucks and it's awful. And I know you feel this way too, but it's like you go through something like that, something where everything that used to work no longer works. You learn more about yourself. You grow more as a person, as an individual contributor, as whatever you're doing by going through that. That was a big trigger event because it forces you to say, okay, being nice and being pleasant is not getting me anywhere. In fact, I think some customers and prospects are just scared to tell me no because I am so nice. So I have to change. And then I think one of the beauties of sales is when you change, you get an immediate answer. Does it work or does it not? We talk about ruffling feathers. I think one of the missteps I see a lot of people make is that it's very like antagonistic and it's very speaking in absolutes. So this would be an example of this would be cold email is dead or cold calling is dead or the way we've always done it is dead. Like I spent way too much time on LinkedIn. And there's a feeling you get when you read those posts, right? And it's this feeling of defensiveness if they're saying what you believe is wrong. And I think I was hyper aware of that feeling. And so what it caused me to do is say, how do you ruffle someone's feathers without being offensive or saying that they're stupid or they're wrong? Because, and I use this example all the time, if I was at a party and someone came up and was like, I hate your shirt, I can help you find a better shirt. I would be so hurt and so offended. I wouldn't even be paying attention to the fact that they think they can help me find a better shirt. You just want to leave. Be like, don't look at me. I hate this shirt now. (laughs) I look ugly. So I think as stupid as an example that is, I'm always thinking at it through that lens, which is to get someone to change, they have to want to listen to you first. And so ruffling feathers does not need to have this negative connotation. It isn't always like an in-your-face motion. In fact, I think there's a ton of psychology, a ton of art, how you get someone to come to their own realization. Same with customers and prospects. It's the same with people inside of your business. So how do you actually do that? You know, it's like if lovingly change someone's perspective. Let's even bring it very political. Let's say someone believes in the blue and and they're very liberal and you think another way. How would one even begin to change someone's perspective there if they very much believe opposite of them? I read as I was saying it, I was like, maybe I should give a different example because this is like getting into the core of red speed. That one's definitely complex, but let's it's, 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 one for the purpose of your explanation, if you feel called. Dang. This episode is brought to you by Alluvians. Alluvians is helping sales professionals and sales leaders master the craft of sales by transforming the inner game. Last year, we threw over four retreats and helped over 150 tech sales professionals, leaders, and founders. And next, We got it going on May 3rd through 5th in the beautiful Austin, Texas area. So make sure you apply to alluvians.co to check it out for more. How do you solve the problems of this country? (laughs) Is actually a better way of saying that. Welcome to our new show, Fixing America. (laughs) No, I think so when it comes to what, how we as humans operate. We are all, whether we're in a prospect situation, in a real life situation, and I try not to use the word always, but we always make decisions based off of beliefs and assumptions that we hold. So our behaviors are a result of our beliefs and assumptions. Our beliefs and assumptions are dictated by things we've experienced, things we've learned, read, saw, someone told us. What we often try to do when we try to get someone to change their behavior or believe something different is we tell them why their behavior is wrong. And all that is doing is just 
forcing them to then defend the beliefs and assumptions that they have. So the way that I think about it, and I did learn this from Challenger, so I want to give credit where credit is due, is if you think of it like an iceberg, the behavior is what you see on top of the water. Beliefs and assumptions are underneath it. Before I can get anyone in the world, my kids, to change their behavior, I have to introduce information that contradicts their beliefs and assumptions because it has to be their decision to realize this belief and assumption that I've been holding is in some way logically flawed. If I can show information that gets someone to come to that conclusion, my belief and assumption is flawed. Now I've created a crack in that iceberg. And now I have the opportunity to help them see what has that flawed belief and assumption caused you to believe about how you choose to deliver this behavior. All right. So you you talked actually about the behaviors and how there's the underlying beliefs and the assumptions. Dive into that. Keep on going on that. What's under all that? How are we supposed to use those things to influence somebody? Perfect. So if you think about it like an iceberg, you've got your behaviors is what we see on the surface. This is the things people do, the decisions they make. Beliefs and assumptions underneath it are what inform that. So if I read something, learned something, something worked for me at some point, that informs my behavior. So if I want someone to change my behavior, the thing that's not going to work is me sitting here saying, Alex, your behavior is wrong and you need to change it. Because that behavior, again, is informed by those beliefs and assumptions. So they are going to defend it. Versus if I introduce new information about the beliefs and assumptions that are dictating that behavior, all of a sudden it is a self-realizing moment where the person I'm trying to convince decide, wow, okay, my logic, my assumption, my belief there was in some way flawed. And so it becomes their idea. I am just the person giving them the information to come to that realization on their own. I think having kids has helped me understand human behavior more than probably many things in life. I cannot just tell them to do things. I have to get them to find a way to believe it's what they want to do and what's in their best interest. And that's the thing I think we miss. We're so busy being like, your behavior is wrong. Do this instead. We've never really won their hearts and minds as to why they should change. All right, you solved this country's problems. If you could, please. I still don't think I'm converting anybody to a new political party. So if you're changing someone's beliefs and their assumptions, the way that I I remember learning this kind of a similar type of framework one time, it's like changing their identity, which is underneath. The hard part is that I'll even compare it to the right versus left. I don't want to make this political at all. Like both have so much truth to it. In certain areas, I think one truth is more true than others. You're going to almost like the seed of it. You see all this plant come up, you see all these leaves hanging off, and we keep on trying to just trim the leaves or change that. But at the end of it, it's actually just in the core of it. And so how do you change that? That's when you start to get good. And this is where I think there's like a psychological safety, right? Again, it has everything to do with the tone and the delivery. If if my goal is to be right, I could give you all the new information in the world and I can give you every reason to reconsider it. You are still going to resist it because you know my... Puppies in the background. Puppies, just loving the bark. They really liked what you were saying right there. <laughs> they agreed. That's who I do it for. Okay, so if my goal is to be right, it is so difficult to ever change that person's belief because they know I have a selfish motivation for it. And this is where I think having great managers and having great coaches has been a gift in my career and I wish it for everybody else too. I know for a very long time, this worked really well because of X, Y, and Z until this changed. And how frustrating is that? That this thing that used to work so well is no longer serving us. I'm not saying you are the problem. You did something wrong. I'm saying this environmental shift happened and you just were a 
consequence of it, right? And I think when you allow someone to be off of the hook as to you're not the, the problem, even though in many cases they are, what that's doing is it's opening a door that probably will eventually allow you to have that conversation. I just find it's really hard to have that conversation right off the bat because you just don't have the trust. You don't have psychological safety in a relationship to admit, yeah, I'm, I've screwed up big time to someone I barely know. Yeah, it's a combination of psychological safety for sure. But one thing that you said that I really liked is if my agenda or if my goal is trying to change their mind, just whether or not your words represent your tonality will or even just the energy from what you are coming from will. And that is what's going to really rub people the wrong way. And this is the complexity of any type of leadership role. Okay, yes, if I'm selling somebody something, I'm trying to convince them to buy my product at the end. The core of what I have an agenda, absolutely. Yet, how do I not let my agenda supersede my ability to connect with someone or just to guide them in the right way? It's like, I'm trying to make you do something versus simply being a guide and a shepherd of think about this sort of thing. Have you considered this? Like you're helping them come to the answer versus you saying, I'm trying to convince you to buy my product. I love the word choice you use there. Guiding and shepherding, being a Sherpa, whatever we want to say it. So much of if you look at people that are well-recognized in business, if this very similar personality type of dictatorship, I'm right and you're wrong. And people see that and people see how much people flock to that. And I think we misinterpret that is just the way you get people to believe in you. And I see it a lot on LinkedIn. I see it a lot in sales calls even of just, I'm going to show you why you're wrong and I'm right because my belief system is that then you'll choose to work with me. And I think so much of what makes us successful, not just in sales, but in our interpersonal relationships at work is the ability for someone to understand that you're not trying to tell them to do anything. You're trying to introduce information that helps them make the best possible decision for themselves. And I think even just that reframing, Alex, of what you said as to if you are in sales, like my job is not to come in and tell them that they're wrong and I'm right. My job is to give them information that allows them to make that decision. Then I can leave every single call feeling really good about myself because I know if I didn't do it, it's either because I made a wrong assumption about their circumstance and there's an actual reason why it doesn't make sense or it was the way I delivered it. And if it's the way I delivered it, that's just something I can now get to work on and get better at and change and try new things. And so it was almost a coping mechanism in sales for me to not get so down about bad outcomes or lost deals was I tried to reframe it of, okay, this is just an opportunity for me to think differently and try something different and and learn from that. Yeah, I've always found it's a constant self-practice. Yes. I even experienced... Not just when I was in tech sales, but hey, you know, I'm having conversations with people about attending Alluvian's retreats. And it's like, how is my practice not to enroll this person to the retreat, but simply be in a state of just like, I'm coming from a really grounded, safe place of here. Like, if you choose to do this, absolutely awesome. If not, that is your journey and being unattached from it. But I've found it's less about like, how do I act with another person versus more like, how am I acting with myself? <laughs> like, how am I doing constantly? Is Am I like connecting with myself? Am I like really coming from a good spot? And it's like, when we feel good, like I've been experiencing doing this one practice of like being present to now. And like, I was taking the dog on a, a walk earlier and I like chose to leave my phone at home. And I was like, let me look at the leaves. Like how beautiful these leaves are. You know, I was like eating my salad earlier and I took a bite of a tomato and I was like, this tomato is really (laughs) delicious. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun when I do that stuff and I'm actually experiencing the joy of those things. I'm a better fucking sales professional. One thing is so correlated to the next. 
It is. I'm attached to my phone most times. And this year I started getting the habits of just taking walks. And the quality of ideas that you get on a walk are always better than the quality of ideas you get sitting here staring at a computer screen. And it's because of what you said. It's like disconnecting from just everything and focusing on finding beauty, finding inspiration, finding these things. As cheesy as it sounds, I do think I saw a dramatic difference in myself this year, particularly around creativity and safety taking chances, doing things that I had not done before because I was far more intentional about not getting caught up in the everyday of things. So I completely believed what you just said. So you mentioned a a few times throughout this podcast, you had great managers and great coaches. And sure, you are an intelligent person. You're somebody who would want to invest into you because you're a good investment, so to speak. Like you're hungry, right? You're, you're hungry to learn more. And so it's like, why wouldn't I want to invest in this person? You know, you've just said it like a few times throughout here. So for many people, I think they look at their manager and they're like, I don't know if I like this person here. Or they're looking for a mentor or they're looking for a coach. What are your recommendations to how do you actually develop this community and these people who you can rely on and who can support you in blazing your own path? We are living in the land of the riches right now. When I think about there were years I had terrible managers, I would never name names, but there was one in particular. He was like Michael Scott from the office, but not as nice. And I struggled with that because I was like, well, he's my manager. I'm not going to be able to learn. Maybe I just leave the company. Maybe. And fortunately, I had the realization like you've got a lot of good things here. Don't make a rash decision just because one thing isn't ideal. And so my approach then was let me go find people that I think I could see myself being similar to not maybe not always the number one performer, because sometimes the number one performer was like the kick the door down person. I was like, I'm never going to be that person. So I could spend as much time as I want around them. That's just not who I am. So that was a manual process. Now, when I say we live in a land of the rich, there's never been a better time to be able to connect with other people, whether it's on LinkedIn or communities or groups like yours, where it's about going to places with people who want something similar to you. I think when you show up to a community event, in most cases, not all, it's other people who are really passionate about the thing that the topic of the community is about. And so now we have this pre-filtered mechanism where it's, I don't even need to take risks. I don't need to fly to San Francisco to go to some event and be like, I hope I meet someone. Like Olivia is a great example. You go to that and you're around other people who want something similar for themselves. So anybody who's, I don't have a great manager, I think it's a bit of a bad attitude problem to have. Is it great to have a wonderful manager? Absolutely. There's just too many easy ways to connect with other people who can inspire us, help us, coach us, mentor us now. Hell yeah. Are you just simply being resourceful? There, Whether it's an online community, an in-person community, there's so much out there. But the word community, I feel like means a certain thing. And, you, and I really liked how you phrased it as well. It's a group of people who actually care about the similar shit that you care about. And, and the way I define a specific community is it's a group of people who are working towards a common goal, a greater thing, a larger mission together. And sure, you can have your individual goals within that. But if you're in a community of people who are wanting to st- step into the greatest version of themselves and leave meaningful impact in this world, that's a shared vision and goal. And sure, when somebody is struggling, absolutely, they have each other's back. There's no doubt about that. That's the beauty of a community. But actually, what I think is more important is they say, hey, in this community, you got to step the hell up. It's like there's a standard here. There's also a level of accountability here. And sure, we're all going to mess up. But it's like, if you're going to rub shoulders with this crew here, you got to act it sort of thing. That I think is 
a beautiful definition of community because I agree with you. Community is a term that's been like overgeneralized and thrown around. And I think there's examples of communities that do that. But I also look at, so there's a guy, his name's Riley Blaisdell. I don't know if you are connected with him on LinkedIn. He was someone that was let go from his job. He had a pretty tough upbringing. And during the pandemic, chose to take total accountability of his development. He wanted to break into a different type of sales role. And he just started consuming podcasts, connecting with guests, sharing what he learned, asking the question like he would have asked if he was the podcast host. I was one of the people that he connected with. And I remember just thinking like, what a rare, special gift of someone who is taking so much self-accountability to get better at the things they knew they wanted to prove at. And someone who wasn't just like, I want to connect with someone who's got a big following. Like all of his questions felt so sincere. I just really want to make sure I understand this concept before I go and try it. And so I think Riley's an example of someone who made his own community within a broader community by finding other people who were receptive to that conversation. And now he turns around and he gives it back to everybody. And I just think that is the most beautiful thing. That is something we couldn't do 10 years ago because we just didn't have the connection points that we do today. Damn, this is good. I love this shit. <laughs> so I got a, a couple more questions here for you. So you're a keynote speaker now, which is so cool. And you've spoken on many stages to sales organizations, to leaders, to many different situations, containers, I guess you could say. I guess I'm curious, did you always know you wanted to be a keynote speaker first off? Did you always just like that? And second, what are you talking about? What at the core of it is Jen, aka Demand Jen? What's her message that she's really using her platform to talk about? I did not always know I wanted to do it, primarily because I didn't think people like me could do it. I thought Mm. keynote speaking was for Olympians and professional athletes and book authors. And I am none of those three. And so when I became the evangelist at Challenger, I started getting and I had that podcast at Challenger. What happened was people started to be able to know what I stood for. So I was talking like you're talking right in a podcast about what I believed and felt about selling. And so people were like pre-screening me and being like, oh, we, we believe in that too. We want our sellers to believe in that. So come on in. And so the more I did it, the more I realized this belief I had around, I can't do it because I'm not an Olympic athlete started to fade away. And then I was like, all right, this seems to be something people are willing to pay for. So it wasn't something I always thought I could do, which dictated me believing like it wasn't something I could do. What I talk about comes full circle back to what we've been talking about this whole time. My style is very different that I think a lot of the SKO speakers that I've sat in audiences and watched. And what I mean by that is it's motivational or it's here's what you should be doing. And I'm an expert. I'm very intentional. I think this is what makes me different. I think this is what people appreciate the most that I will stand up on a stage and be like, here's what I used to believe and assume. And here's all the reasons I got it wrong. And here's what happened. I am saying I'm a sales expert. I think my knowledge has come from screwing up. And I just feel like sales is one of those professions where we have made it so taboo to admit that people that are good at sales now were shit at sales at a certain point. And so largely what I talk about is I'll take a number of different themes, whether it's prospecting and cold emailing, or whether it's I'm now moving up market and selling to enterprise, and I've got teams of people saying no, instead of just one person saying yes. And I will start by saying, here's what I used to believe. I Don't blame me if you believe it too. And here's what happened when I believed that and when I did this. And then I, I believed this, changed this, and here's what happened instead. And my whole entire goal is to make it so that someone leaves that saying, I don't suck. I just maybe had the wrong information. 
And two, that they leave with something they can actually use. Like no knock against motivational speaking, but I think right now where we are, you mentioned it. It's like, you can motivate me to do more of the same things, but if the same things I've been doing are not the right things, I'm not going to be more effective just because I worked harder. I've got to figure out how do I change my motion? And so I think what I try to do is just be so relatable. I'm speaking as a salesperson, not as someone above them telling them this is why you're stupid and why you're wrong. You're showing, hey, I'm a practitioner just as much as you guys. I've also experienced when I speak on stage or, or talk about the work and, and doing the inner work of sales, the best talks when I'm just sharing about what I've got going on and what I'm learning and getting punched in the face on and struggling with. And just it's first of all saying, I don't know all the answers, but I'm in a deep level of inquiry into the questions just like y'all. Let's just do that. People want to connect. And just because you or I are on a stage and they're sitting in an audience does not make that go away. And if I'm going to listen to a damn word that comes someone out of someone's mouth, I have to want to listen to them. And I just think that was the thing that all of the experiences that I talked about earlier around getting people to reconsider their beliefs and assumptions about how they sell, that just made fuel for the fire of keynote speaking because that's really what that is. I'm not going to be able to fix the world's problems or turn around someone's revenue projections in a 30-minute keynote, but I can get people to walk out of that room thinking and believing different things and willing to try it. And that is cool to me because sales is one of those professions where you change what you say, how you say it, the tone of how you say it, and you can see really crazy different results. Okay. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like, man, I was bummed that we're up at just about a time. I'm like, I just want to kick it. So I, I have one final question for you. But first, I do just, I want to acknowledge the hell out of you. Like just way to bring it, the authenticity, the energy, the examples. I can see why I have such a good reputation, as weird as that sounds, but more just like, I can see why you're doing what you're doing and the impact that you're having. So thank, thank you, you. For, for bringing it. So my final question is this. The show is called The Rising Leader Podcast. What do you view as the rising leader? I view the rising leader as someone whose ego does not outweigh their desire to consistently challenge their own beliefs and assumptions. I know I've said beliefs and assumptions 800 times on this podcast, but I think of the people that I want to follow, the people that I believe in, they are the people that never stop challenging their own conventional wisdom. And I don't care what title you have, we can all do that. We can all choose to go through life that way, whether it's our personal lives, our professional lives. So I'm not impressed or wooed by titles. I am impressed by people who are constantly challenging themselves. Oh, yeah. Jen, actual final question for you. <laughs> if you want to get a hold of you, what is the best way to do so? Uh, you know, I spent all damn day on LinkedIn. So Jen Allen Knuth. And then I've stood up a very ugly website, which I will be working on in my own attempts to challenge myself. It's demandgen.com with a J. So that's where you can find me. I love it. Thank you, Jen, <laughs> uh, again. And for all the people who checked in here, if you know somebody who needs to hear this, which a lot of people need to hear this, make sure you send it their way. Give Jen a follow if you have not already. And Jen, much love, my friend. Thank you. Loved spending the time with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rising Leader Podcast. Make sure you hit that follow button so you get notified every time a new episode releases. If you know someone who wants to take their lives and their career to the next level, send them this episode so we can all rise together. For more information, check out alluviance.co. We'll see you next time. And in the meantime, keep letting it flow.
This episode is brought to you by Alluviance. Alluviance is helping sales professionals and sales leaders master the craft of sales by transforming the inner game. In the past 12 months, we've thrown over four retreats and impacted over 100 tech sales professionals, leaders, and founders on diving in deep on what really matters, but really mastering the craft and being in an incredible community. Our next Arise Immersion is coming up this May 3rd through 5th in the beautiful Austin, Texas area. And make sure you grab your spot. Check out alluvians.co to apply there. Hope to see you there.